This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Hamilton residents who rely on the HSR are growing more and more frustrated. Why? Well, we're recently learning that there is a 19% absenteeism rate amongst HSR, uh, HSR drivers that has left some routes short, riders stranded at the side of the road. The stat that I heard that uh, CHML reporter Ken Mann reported on last week was 23 buses per day are not running because of this absenteeism rate. Uh, bad morale, burnouts, they've both, both been blamed. Unions saying that HSR drivers uh, are not properly staffed. They need more. They need more funding. Uh, and Hamilton's transit system is being uh, driven into the ground. Let's recap some of the things that have happened with CHML's Ken Mann. Ward 5 Councilor Chad Collins has questioned Transit Director Debbie Dale Vidava about stories of low morale from employees. Many of them share that it's not a positive environment that they're working in. Ward 8's Terry Whitehead wonders whether the spike in absenteeism is more organized than just a blip on the radar. You have ruled out that job action informally is taking place. Through the chair, our data does not support that at this time. Extraordinary level of driver absenteeism resulted in over 1,000 missed hours of HSR service in October. The short-term mitigation plan, which Dale Vidava acknowledges is unsustainable, involves permission to bring back retired drivers and allowing others to work up to 68 hours a week. Mayor Fred Eisenberger says the bottom line is relieving far too many people on the street. And they rely on this service. Uh, this is not a luxury for them. This is a necessity. Ken Mann. 900 CHML News. Well, there's a bit of the background on what uh, residents who take public transit here in Hamilton are facing. Let's dive a little deeper into this topic with Ian Borsick. He works for Environment Hamilton, has been involved in Yes LR canvassing in Dundas, and he joins us now on the Bill Kelly Show. Ian, how are you? Hello, Ian. Hi, Rick. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. Excellent. Um, so Environment Hamilton, which you are a part of, is organizing uh, an emergency meeting, I guess we can call, for yep. November the 14th. Uh, well, I'll let you explain. Why are you guys launching into this? So what we've been doing here in Environment Hamilton is trying to raise the alarm on a long-term trend of underfunding with our HSR here in Hamilton. Uh, if you look at the trends for funding and looking at the budgets, it's uh, we've been spending less and less over a long period of time. Um, and it came to a head, I think, last year where council decided to defer the 10-year transit plan um, after already raising fares, but not contributing more from the tax base into the plan to get things going. It must be, and I know you're just one person, Environment Hamilton is one group, but there are um, hundreds, if not thousands, well, there probably is thousands of yeah. HSR users in this city who are being let down. What are you hearing from those individuals that make up that group? Well, we're hearing a lot of frustration. Uh, last year, uh, before the budgetary process, we presented nearly a 1,000 signatures from HSR riders demanding council to invest more money into the system. And it's ultimately, it's a lot of frustration, you know. It's uh, for a lot of HSR riders, these are folks who don't own cars or can't drive, um, and they rely on this every day. Or, you know, simply, you know, we, we've seen uh, the stats that here in Hamilton, if you're looking to do your part for the environment, you should not drive and take the HSR, but it's a public service that isn't reliable enough. Are we at a crisis point? We're approaching it. You know, when we have uh, drivers working up to 68 hours per week uh, to fill gaps in service, um, this is because there's a shortage of drivers. 
Um, you know, I, I don't feel comfortable riding a bus where the driver's been working six to eight hours a week. I think that's a bit too much. Um, and ultimately, even with that, we're still seeing buses arriving late so, or not showing up at all. Chatting with uh, Ian Borsick, he works for Environment Hamilton, has been involved in the SLRT canvassing in Dundas as well, talking about the 19% absenteeism rate amongst HSR drivers that has left some routes short, riders stranded at the side of the road, bad morale has been pointed to, burnout, uh, funding or proper, proper staffing levels. Is there a magic pill to this? Is it just pouring more money, getting more drivers? Well, no, this is a long-term problem, right, that we're coming to see have a result on the system. This isn't something that can be fixed uh, immediately, but I would really like to see council step up and show the leadership on this file, show the priority both with funding, but also in terms of the HSR, you know, doesn't have a committee for it. You know, this is something that's just discussed around budgetary time or when we have poor service. When I want to see council step up in light of approving the LRT, talking about how we can make this a robust transit system, no matter who's operating the LRT, to feed into it. So then that way we can have, you know, good transit across the city. This uh, issue certainly has come at a, uh, um, uh, I guess, the proper time because come Friday, the 2018 transit budget is going to be up for discussion at City Hall. What are you expecting to hear there? Um, ultimately, uh, I'm hoping to hear uh, some positive news, but unfortunately, council has given staff the uh, direction to not raise taxes too much. Um, you know, this happens every year, um, and this is what the concern was last year when they deferred the 10-year transit strategy was, were they really going to increase spending uh, going into an election year uh, just before everyone looks at their tax bills uh, before they cast their ballot? So you're not expecting much change in terms of dollars and cents? No, I, 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 I want to be optimistic about it, but I ultimately think uh, what we need to do as HSR riders and users and folks who rely on the system is, you know, make our voices heard, meet on the 14th, and work from there and make it very clear to council what we want to see them do. How many people do you expect to attend the emergency meeting, and, and what is the main goal going to be of that meeting? So the main goal of the meeting is to have HSR riders both voice their, you know, specific concerns. Um, You know, let's identify if there's specific routes that are particularly problematic. Um, But HSR riders can also have solutions to offer. And I want to have that on record. We're going to compile it into a report and we're going to present that to council. Um, And in terms of attendance, uh, I'm looking to see a pretty good group showing up. Uh, There's been a lot of interest. When you talk about solutions, what do you plan to bring to the table? What we plan to bring to the table is, you know, ultimately trying to get council to look at what the specific routes are that we're seeing issues on. Uh, We want to specifically communicate that this isn't something that we uh, think that there is a silver bullet for, but we want to ultimately try to make it very clear to council that we want them to act on this now so we can start fixing this problem uh, before we have the LRT installed, uh, so that way we have a strong, robust transit system citywide. Have there been uh, instances when you've been on an HSR bus where you've, uh, you've maybe chatted with the driver or you've kind of noticed that the driver has been on the job for a long, long time or this has been oh, you know, a long yeah. week for that individual? And, and I'm not the only one. You know, there was uh, that news story from McMaster students bringing the uh, bus driver the coffee because yeah. the bus driver didn't have enough time to take a break because he was, you know, constantly working. Um, so this is something that I think riders are noticing across the city is the drivers who are showing up, you know, the drivers who do still have the energy and are well enough to keep working, um, they're working a lot. And it's uh, quite apparent and it's uh, not fair to them. 
so how do you feel as a rider on that bus knowing the driver may not be 100%? It makes, it makes me nervous. Um, but ultimately, you know, I, the HSR drivers are very strong professionals. Uh, I know they wouldn't get behind the wheel unless they felt it was safe for the, dri- for the riders. Uh, but ultimately, when you have that happening, it's, you know, it's fine for that one week where that driver worked a particular amount of hours. Uh, but if this is a problem that's going to be happening for two months, um, you're going to see more absenteeism, I would say, because they're going to see increased burnout. The 19% figure is much higher than other municipalities. So what are other municipalities doing that Hamilton is not? So what we ultimately want to see is we want to see hiring of more drivers. We want to see dollars going into the HSR to invest, you know, replace drivers who have retired and quit. Um, but, also, uh, but also we want to see, you know, ultimately more buses on the, on the road. Uh, when buses go out of service, they're taken out for maintenance, and there's no bus replacing them sometimes. Um, so what we want to see is we want to see more dollars go into the HSR transit system now. That's what council can do immediately, at least as a show of good faith that this is something they're taking seriously. Any guesstimate on how many more drivers are needed? Um, I, I don't have I don't know have that estimate in front of me, but ultimately looking at the presentation that the HSR director presented last time, uh, you know they are making more hires, but it's uh, clearly not enough if we're going to be requiring uh, over the next two months some drivers to be working up to six to eight hours a week. I'm not sure what's going on with buses. I know this is more of a funding issue, but I mean, we have a school bus driver shortage. We have an HSR driver shortage, or at least an absenteeism rate. Uh, obviously, it's it's not an easy job. No, it's certainly not an easy job, and it's certainly a job that uh, you know they're interacting with people every day. Um, you know, the drivers I talk to, they don't want to put up a sneeze guard or anything like that. But you know, if someone gets on their bus and they're sick. You know, that driver <laughs> is at risk. Ian, uh, just a refresher on when the meeting is and how uh, people in the community can get more information. Yes, so if you go to environmenthamilton.com, we're going to have some information up there. You can also find us on Facebook, and we have a Facebook event going. It's November 14th. It's a Tuesday. It's going to be at 6 p.m. in Council Chambers uh, in Hamilton City Hall on Main Street. HSR uh, drivers invited as well? Oh, yeah, everyone's invited. (laughs) Council, staff, everyone. Excellent. Ian, thanks for the time today. No, yeah, thank you so much, Rick. Ian Borsick, uh, working for Environment Hamilton and has been involved in the Yes LRT canvassing in Dundas as well. You know, this this is not a an easy issue. It's not an issue that is going to be solved, I think, just with throwing some dollars at uh, at this issue. Yes, you can hire more drivers, uh, but then you got to train them. Uh, it, it obviously, has a budget impact to it. There needs to be, I think, a solid plan in place to say, how do we get to the bottom of this? I know there has been some suggestions that this 19% absenteeism rate amongst HSR drivers is a well, more than a silent protest in terms of how they have been or how they feel that they're being driven into the ground with these 68-hour work weeks, if in fact that is a fact of life week in and week out. That's a lot of hours to be sitting in a bus driving this hunk of metal around the city of Hamilton uh, going through the same neighborhood over and over and over again. Hey, uh, obviously they uh, they became drivers uh, of the HSR for a reason. Uh, they need the money. Maybe they like doing that. Maybe they were former truckers. Maybe they just like to be a bus driver. That's fine. Um, but it is a monotonous and sometimes taxing on the body to be sitting there for all those hours and uh, driving a bus around. On the other side, though, I mean, this is a very much needed uh, piece of our community. People rely 
on the HSR to get to work, to get to school, to get to wherever they have to go, a doctor's appointment, shopping center, whatever the case is. Uh, and uh, it should be uh, of, uh, of interest and of note that this emergency meeting next Tuesday, November 14th, from 6 to 8 p.m. at City Hall is uh, vitally important. I'll take a quick call from Johnny, who's called into the program. Johnny, you want to uh, share some thoughts on this? Yeah, how you doing, buddy? Good, how are you? I'm good, man. Uh, I was just wondering, like, no one, everybody, even Bill Kelly last week, talking about the absenteeism and bus drivers and all these hours yeah. now, but no one's saying, like, no one tells you their schedule. they got a weird schedule, bus drivers. I think they do four on, four off, four on. So what are you going to have them do with four on, four off, four on? It's, it's a 16, 20-hour day. Mm-hmm. No one's mentioned their schedules. Their schedules are weird. It's not like getting a driver for eight hours. I think it's a split shift. Interesting. Wow, that that's... Uh, no one's brought it up yet. I, I, I wouldn't want to do that. So how do you know this? Are you a driver? Are you a friend of a driver, a relative? No, no I just kind of, I'm, I know the city. You just good. know. <laughs> yeah, and it's just no one's, no one's going through that. Interesting. I'd be, a, I'd be a bus driver, buddy, if I could do an eight-hour shift, but it's the way it is. Wow. I'm just saying no one's mentioning that part. Wow, I didn't know that. Thanks for sharing. Okay, buddy. Enjoy the rest of the day. Johnny with, uh, wow, those are, those are weird hours. I'm not sure why they would do it like that. Maybe they don't want the driver sitting there for eight hours straight. That, that'd be a lot. Um, November 14th, emergency meeting uh, called by Environment Hamilton at City Hall, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. If you want to make your voice heard, uh, get to that meeting or just be involved in the 2018 transit budget discussions. Uh, go to a meeting if you can, if you do have some time off work or whatever the case is, and uh, maybe uh, just show your support or show your uh, distaste for, for what's happening uh, in this community. Let your voice be heard. That's what uh, this is uh, all about. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Cheating on your spouse. Have you ever thought about it? Have you ever gone through with it and done it? Uh, The rate of married women uh, who have cheated has apparently increased by 40%, while the rate among men has not changed at all. So why are more women cheating these days? And why do people cheat? Let's bring in our next guest. Her name is Claire A.H. She is a sex educator and Hamilton-based matchmaker with Friend of a Friend Matchmaking and joins us now on The Bill Kelly Show. Claire, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Not too bad. Thanks for joining us today. So maybe maybe we'll set the foundation with uh, what is Friend of a Friend Matchmaking? What do you guys do? Well, it's not super related to infidelity, so I'll get that right out there. Uh, What we do is um, we're a... Toronto, Hamilton, and Ottawa-based matchmaking service, and it's a little more niche and boutique. <clears throat> we work, uh, we work kind of closely with people, so we meet people in person and uh, do kind of an in-depth interview based on some uh, some questionnaires that we provide ahead of time, and then we really invest ourselves in trying to find not only a decent match, but a strong mutual match for people. So we emphasize uh, quality over quantity and really a a strongly personal connection with with each person we meet. So this is a little deeper than just online dating and, and, and matching profiles, right? Absolutely, yeah. I think I always like to say that having multiple tools in your toolbox when it comes to dating and meeting people is important. And what we offer is a more of a personalized touch. We offer um, a discussion where we we kind of investigate their desires, what they want, and 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 maybe sometimes uncover things that they didn't realize they want or different ways that that manifests. So it's kind of like 
I always say it's a little bit like a therapy session. Um, and then uh, we we emphasize kind of a a very specific uh, match as opposed to, okay, this person fits in with their kind of age range, height range, and wants basically the same thing. So we're looking for things that maybe they don't even necessarily know that they're looking for, but maybe they brought up 10 times in their interview without identifying it Mm -hmm. as one of their most important items for a a match. How did you get into becoming a matchmaker? So I was actually, I was a client a few years ago, and I loved the process. Um, And then I've I've been a sex educator, and I've worked mostly in sexuality, but as it uh, specifically as it relates to relationships. And so eventually, friend of a friend got too big. Uh, Sophie Papamarco is the uh, the owner of Friend of a Friend, and for a long time, the only matchmaker. But at a certain point, there are too many people for for one person to meet conceivably in a, in a year. So she took on a few of us, and I I just saw her post about it, and I thought, wow, I think Friend of a Friend, I can point to that meeting as being instrumental in me realizing the difference between what I thought I wanted and what I actually wanted. Hmm. And And, I just wanted to do that for other people. And what makes a good matchmaker? Because, you know, everyone has that friend who, who, uh, you know, tells their other friend or or might tell you that, you know, I can find someone for you. I'm a good matchmaker. What what makes up a good matchmaker? I think listening is probably the biggest part of it. And that's not just listening to what people are saying and, you know, taking diligent notes and taking in what they want, but also looking for other things that they're saying that are not necessarily what they're looking for, but what they keep coming back to, finding larger themes and being able to kind of ask the right questions of people. So often we look, as with uh, as with online dating, we look for sort of specific requirements of people, be it height or salary or location or it's kind of like I don't want to say trivial interests, but interests that are maybe a little bit more cosmetic or surface. And we don't always, it's very hard to gauge kind of the larger personality traits and how, not only, you know, you want someone kind, but what does kind mean to you? And that's a question that a lot of people have never asked themselves, and it really does impact the kinds of people they meet. So, yeah, just being able to kind of listen and and help people to to say the things that they need to say, not just the things that they think they want or they think you want them to say, but kind of what they actually desire. We're chatting with uh, Claire A.H., sex educator and Hamilton-based matchmaker with Friend of a Friend Matchmaking here on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin in for Bill this week. Have you matched any uh, people who are cheating on their spouses? No. Okay. Uh, we, we ask for people to disclose um, if they're in a relationship. We do. I, I certainly have uh, people who identify as polyamorous. And as long as everybody's on board, that's wonderful. And I actually think matchmaking can be a great tool for poly people as long as everybody's on board. So obviously, one of the questions we ask preliminarily is if people identify as polyamorous and if they would like to date somebody who identifies as polyamorous because it's a great <laughs> monogamy and polyamory and anything between all fine choices, but everybody needs to be on the same page. Right. And polyamorous is basically an open relationship? Uh, yeah. Like I think polyamory specifically refers to um, like a romantic interaction as well, but there's like open relationships and swinging, and uh, there are so many different iterations of openness that there are 
<laughs> it can be purely sexual. It can be sexual with a little dating. It can be romantic. It can be anything up to multiple partners who all kind of feel like they're on equal footing. So, yeah. Interesting. Uh, so today we're talking about cheating, uh, why people cheat, and why apparently more women are cheating. So maybe we'll start with the first one. Why do people cheat? Oh, well... If only there was one good answer to that. <laughs> there are lots and lots of reasons, and I think a lot of people assume that it's because there's something fundamentally wrong with a relationship or there's some, something fundamentally wrong with um, their partner. Mm-hmm. And that at times can be the case, but it's often not the case. People are looking for um, the spark of novelty. They want to feel desired. They want to feel that kind of pursuit, that chase. Sometimes it's something they're like seeking to either find or prove about themselves to the affair. Uh, sometimes it is about the relationship, but also sometimes it's about the actual connection they feel with somebody else. And that's kind of, I think, maybe the most uncomfortable reality of uh, infidelity is that sometimes it is about the other person and the connection, and that's okay too. Uh, you mentioned, you know, bad relationship or, you know, one spouse is is not treating the other one as, as they should be, and that other spouse goes and, and finds, you know, another partner to be with. Uh, 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 can in some cases it be uh, an ego boost? They need, they need something more? For sure. That idea of, like, seeking to prove something about yourself, whether yeah. that's, you know, feeling still desired by somebody else, and often even in really wonderful relationships, desire is sort of wanes because... There's less novelty. There is a lot of kind of day-to-day stuff that gets in the way of kind of really exciting sexual experience. And maybe we just want to find that from somebody else, whether it's ongoing or just for one night. Uh, Revenge is also sometimes uh, a key part of the potion. Yeah, I mean, I would say, I like, I mean, there are lots of reasons to cheat again. And I would think that that's not the biggest one by any stretch of the imagination and perhaps in popular culture that's more prominently uh shown because it's more exciting and more dramatic than the real reason that maybe you know somewhere in the intervening years your relationship has just kind of become a little stagnant or maybe you've sort of changed as a person and you need to you you come across this opportunity to do something that might prove yourself as still being wild or brave mm-hmm. or sexual or desirable. You mentioned the word stagnant. Uh, it, in many cases, it's just a, a husband or a wife just wants wants something new, want, wants a new experience. Is that fair to say? I would say, like, I mean, so uh, I'm very into Esther Perel, and uh, she has a new book out uh, called um, The State of Affairs, which is all about affairs. Mm-hmm. But her first book is about called Mating in Captivity, and it's really just about that the push and pull between the desire for comfort that comes with like monogamy or very kind of like rooted deep relationships that are almost, you know, two people in different bodies but having the same soul. And sometimes that is the antithesis to desire. And we love novelty and novelty is erotic, that sort of idea of pursuing and seeking that you can play at in uh, relationships and in in sex with kind of long-term partners, but sometimes it is different when you actually experience it with somebody else and have that sort of organic experience of novelty. 
We're chatting about uh, cheating on your spouse and why people do it. Our guest is Claire A.H., sex educator and Hamilton-based matchmaker with friend of a friend matchmaking. Um, one of the other things that I wrote down in terms of what I what I think or 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 believe that people uh, cheat on their spouse is uh, that element of hoping to get caught, not really wanting to get caught, but just the thrill of what what if this happened. Yeah, I think, I mean, the thrill of getting caught <laughs> exists in so many different right. um, ways in terms of sexuality, sometimes literally being walked in on, whether it's by a partner or just somebody in general. And then there's also, aside from the, like, the kind of sexual thrill of that, there's also the other idea of somebody who wants to get caught because maybe that's the thing that's going to set in motion, whether it's a breakup, whether it's kind of talking like a chance to kind of talk through things maybe even foster more kind of communication and intimacy but just like this is the catalyst this is the thing where you know if i don't get caught no harm no foul but if i do maybe this will be the change we need because i can't bring it up i can't just say hey my needs aren't being met or hey we need to talk about the way we communicate and the way we are intimate together. You mentioned uh, the book State of Affairs, Rethinking uh, Infidelity, uh, Esther Perel's book, saying that since the the 90s, the rate of married women who have cheated has increased by 40 percent. So why why has that gone up? What's happening? I'm a data nerd. So (laughs) uh, when it comes to cheating and these kinds of interviews, it's self-reporting. So the question is, there's the the logic that women are more free economically speaking. Um, there's a little more flexibility in terms of our roles and in, in terms of uh, how women express themselves sexually. Uh, but it is also true that um, along with being able to cheat, there's also the being able to be open about cheating. So those same reasons impact why a woman would maybe feel comfortable cheating, but would also uh, impact why a woman would feel comfortable disclosing that she cheated. So is this to say that all of a sudden 40% of women are like, like it's shot up by this, this huge number? Mm, Possibly. It's also possible that women are just feeling more comfortable disclosing. Like they would not be shamed as much, or it would not bring as much, turmoil to their lives and kind of like their their marriages certainly but just their economic stability and their reputation Mm -hmm. Uh, there was a study done by the university of tennessee i think it was just this past summer that uh, looked at millennials and why Mm -hmm. they cheated and uh, i think it was 73 percent of those polled said that uh, interdependence which is the desire to be connected to your partner and feel that they love and value you uh, but 73 percent saying that was the reason why they cheated Uh, a bunch more saying independence they want to be more independent Uh, so it seems to be almost a, a conflicting view of why millennials are cheating well and that it comes back to the fact that so there are so many reasons to cheat and sometimes those conflicts exist within a single person that idea that on the one hand you maybe want to feel that intimacy but on the other hand you want to feel desired or you want to feel autonomous in your sexuality and all of that makes sense even if it's very kind of complicated to parse Mm -hmm. and yeah, I think it, it speaks a lot to how we need to identify not so much the reasons why infidelity occurs, but the ways in which 
it can be a catalyst for change in relationships and and looking at maybe the ways in which we can set up our relationship models, whether initially or after an affair, to be a little more understanding of that. And perhaps that's where discussions of polyamory or openness or whatever do come in. Claire, great chat. Thanks for the insight and uh, good luck with uh, finding more matches for people. Thank you. Claire A.H., a sex educator and a Hamilton-based matchmaker with Friend of a Friend Matchmaking. Uh, you can just Google Friend of a Friend uh, Matchmaking Hamilton. You'll probably uh, get uh, Claire's details. And uh, if you're if you're uh, wanting to find a match, she might be able to help you out. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Fake news. It seems like we hear the term and the the go-to phrase of U.S. President Donald Trump uh, pretty much all the time now. It's, it happens to be every day or every other day. You're you're looking online or you're hearing someone say that's fake news. Or you're seeing a social media post. This is fake news. What exactly is fake news? Where is it coming from? And who is doing it? Uh, there was a great blog that I read yesterday. Sat down. I'm just going through Twitter and and saw David Vidsett. And we've had him on the show before. Uh, anti-terrorism specialist who worked on uh, the investigation into the uh, 7-7 London bombings for five years as a Scotland Yard detective and an anti-terrorist branch and uh, author of a couple books, The Thesis Paradox and The Detriment. And uh, I'm scrolling through this fake news-related blog, and I'm thinking to myself, man, he's he's hitting all the right notes here. Uh, so I thought, we got to bring him on. David Vidsett is joining us now on The Bill Kelly Show. David, thanks for joining us today. Hello, Greg. How are you? I'm not too bad. Uh, fake news sells better than real news is the title of your blog, and you are exactly right. And, and fake news <laughs> is not a new thing. No, I, I'm, I'm interested in fake news. Um, first of all, uh, it's, it does sell better than, than real news. Um, we, we, there's, there's been a lot of a lot in the press about fake news. Donald Trump is, is particularly prominent uh, with, with the fake news thing. Um, but, but I'm interested in it from, from the perspective of um, there's been a, a lot of stuff going on in Canada as well where we have been seeing uh, fake news literally manufactured about terror attacks, and, and about, um, uh, you know, they, they've had videos and photographs and Facebook groups. And, and that's where sort of my interest came from, really, about why, why these groups of people uh, were manufacturing this news from scratch and putting videos online uh, and, and sort of why we click on it. So that's why my interest uh, sort of peaked on it. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's everywhere, absolutely everywhere. And, and when you look back in history, um, we, we've always had it. It's not, it's not a new phenomenon. It's something that's been going on for, uh, for centuries. You have a number of uh, specific uh, examples in your blog on davidvitesett.com, uh, one being maybe the oldest example of fake news, the Shroud of Turin. Yeah, indeed. Um, it surfaced in, uh, in, in, you know, we, we all know it, and, we, and a lot of people still believe that it's, uh, it's, a, it's a real, the real McCoy, and that uh, it was the shroud that wrapped uh, Jesus Christ, and, and it was found in 13 or 1250 or somewhere around there. Um, but um, why has it, why did it only appear at that time? Why, why didn't we know about it years and years before? You know, how, how did it become hidden for 1,200 years and, and, then, and then just surface? But tests have shown, actually, it's, it's fake news. You know, it, it's, it's a complete fake. It was manufactured in, in around the 12th or 13th century. Um, and, and that fits in with when it was, uh, when it was first displayed. 
Um, like like all the fake news, even like the modern fake news we see now, it's been used to make money. Um, it's been put on display. People come and look at it. Um, people pay to look at it, and it's been featured in no fewer than, than, than 10 uh, separate displays. And, and even to this day, there are people that still say it is real, and there are the whole industry that exists around uh, saying it's real, testing to see if it's real, and uh, you know, it's literally about making money. But it's very much like all of the fake news that we see these days. It's about making money. Another uh, couple of examples you provide, uh, a great uh, front page on what is called the Weekly World News from 1993, uh, just five months into uh, Bill Clinton's uh, first term as U.S. president. Uh, the, the headline screams, Hillary Clinton adopts alien baby. Uh, and there's another one, World War II bomber found on the moon. Why, why, do, we, why, why do people buy these things? I mean, what are these people thinking? Well, I, 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 it's difficult to know. I know um, it, here in the UK, we had uh, in the, the World War Two bomber story. Um, it came out in 1988. And just, just before that, the, the newspaper that ran it, the Sunday Sport, it was called, um, it, it, it came up and, and was, was being sold here weekly on a Sunday, a bit like the, the what they call supermarket tabloids in the United States. Um, really, really outrageous stories, you know, World War II bomber found on the moon and the one you just mentioned there about Hillary Clinton adopt alien baby and then the follow-on story from that is the Secret Service built a uh, crest for it inside the walls of the White House. Um, they, they sell, you know, they, 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 there's people that buy them. Now, why they buy them, I don't know. But um, the Sunday Sport that ran the bomber story, two years after it launched on a weekly basis, um, it, it started selling daily. Uh, and, and it was a massive seller. By 2005, they were selling 190,000 copies a day. Um, but obviously, all this stuff is pre-internet, and it's very difficult for people to, to check, you know, where this where this information was coming from, or you know, whether it's real, whether it's not. And I guess that there are a number of people that are duped into thinking it's real. My only explanation. But with the advent of the internet, and and with what's called clickbait. Um, fake news has really, you know, it's mushroomed even further than, than what these these are. And, and, and actually now what we're seeing is that um, fake news is, is, is sort of morphed into something that's a bit more real. Um, just this morning, there was a story, um, it's been called Koi Gate uh, on, on, on Twitter. Just a story, there was a, 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 a story about, uh, this morning's story about uh, Donald Trump in Japan. And there were pictures of him emptying um, a pot of food into a koi car pond and people were calling him outrageous and he got bored and, you know, he, he simply couldn't be bothered to spoon it in like, um, like the, the, the Japanese prime minister was. So he dumped it all in, in one go and walked off. But actually, when, when you look back at the story and you check the videos, that isn't what happened. Um, it, it's, it's the reverse, it's true. It's actually the, the Japanese Prime Minister who's, who tipped his own pot of food into the Koi Pond and Donald Trump has followed. But, so fake news has actually changed slightly and it's become a bit more believable. And, and when, since Donald Trump's come along, it's, it's completely gone out of control, I think. Um, and, and, and perhaps, you know, too many people think that a lot of the stories, particularly about Donald Trump and particularly about what's going on um, between Russia and and uh, the United States, uh, I think it's become a, a bit too real. Um, but it is it's just simply about making money. And there are you know, groups of uh, well, groups of people and companies in uh, all, all four corners of the globe, uh, particularly at the moment in Russia and Georgia, and um, places of the former Soviet Union, 
um, and, and they're making huge amounts of money out of, um, out of you know, the, the political situation in the United States. Um, they're manufacturing stories which are almost true, changing the headlines slightly, a bit like what we saw this morning with Donald Trump. Um, and I'm putting them out online, and, and people are people want to read them. And, and particularly around Donald Trump, they they believe them. You know, they believe that he's a bit of an oaf, um, somebody that that would do these sorts of things and make these great big gaffes um, on on political visits. And they're clicking on them, and and it, it drives revenue to the sites that are, that are manufacturing this news. Um, they, you know, just just like things like the Touring Shroud did for the makers in the day, like the like the Weekly World News did in 1993, and the, and the Daily Sport did. You know, it drives revenue. People buy it, and the, when you click on it, it takes you to their site, and it drives revenue for those sites. And that's simply what's going on. But um, there's a lot of confusion around what the purpose of the fake news is, and a lot of people are saying, well, it's the Russians that are subverting justice in the United States, and they've used it to do this, but. Um, I, you know, my opinion is it's, it's, it's an age-old problem. Fake news is an age-old problem, and it's not changed. It's all about making money still. Our guest is uh, David Weitzett, uh, anti-terrorism specialist, author of the thesis uh, Paradox and the Detriment, uh, joining us here on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin in for Bill. You mentioned clickbait uh, in terms of yeah. fake news. So th- this is uh, an example of this would be uh, you know, a sensational headline, something that you just you, you're absolutely compelled to click on because you want to find out more on this topic. But in fact, it's taking you to a website or a web page in which sponsors are buying into this page because it's getting a lot of clicks, right? That's right. That's correct. It's website traffic. Clickbait is about driving traffic uh, to a certain place. And, and you look at the, the, the all of our news, you know, we, most of us don't spend money on news these days. Um, we, we all want it for free. You know, I can't remember, actually, the last time that I went and bought a newspaper. I mean, I do subscribe to some of the, some of the news uh, media that we have to pay to go past the paywall, but most of my news is free. Now, who pays for that news? How does it, how does it get on the internet for free? You know, that, that it has to create revenue from somewhere. And there are systems that the internet has and systems that websites use in order to generate revenue. And it's based on advertising. And, that's, and, and they get the revenue by, based on the number of clicks, the number of tr- amount of traffic that goes to their website. So when you see a, an outrageous headline and you think, that can't be true, and you click on it, that takes you to a website. That website's revenue will be based on the number of visitors it has to that web page, to that website, and advertisers will pay to be there. They'll pay to be on your computer, on your phone, or on your tablet, laptop, whatever it is you've got. You will have some form of advertising around the page. Now, a lot of time we don't notice this advertising because it's on everything that we see. But that advertising is is, is being paid for, um, and, and, and the host of the advertising is using the money that they get to, to build their news stories. Now, genuine news companies, the BBC we have here, you know, and, and NBC you have in the United States, and all of us, you know, we, we want the, these news companies to be able to survive, but we, want, we don't want the news free. And that's simply how they, how they pay for it these days. It's paid for by website traffic. So where is fake news coming from? But it's coming from everywhere. Um, it, you, you've, you've got, but there are, you know, there, China, it comes from China, it comes from Vietnam, Malaysia, um, but there's a lot of fake news coming out of the former Soviet Union and from, and from Russia. And there are companies that are specializing in making it, making and manufacturing fake news. Um, 
There, there, there are companies um, who are specialising in, in disasters. You know, they make disaster films um, and, and they put it out and they're posting it onto Facebook pages. And they're, they're, they're even creating Facebook groups based on locality. Uh, and you, you've, you know, they'll, they'll friend you on Facebook and then they'll, they'll share these feeds with you. And because it's in your locality, uh, you might share that as well. Um, so these people are, they, they might, they're based in specific locations, but they might be working together. Um, it, it doesn't actually matter where it comes from. You know, the point is, is that none of us really know now what is fake and what isn't because of the way we share news, because of the way news is actually generated um, across the globe. Um, um, you know, people like me, we, 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 will, we will see a Twitter or a Facebook and, we'll, and, and we, we will think, OK, is this real or not? And, and perhaps sometimes, you know, we might share it. And then that suddenly gets shared by, by a whole host of people. And suddenly this thing, this becomes news. But what's the reality of it? Um, and, and I think that's where we, we need to get back to. We need, we need to start thinking about what is the reality of what I'm sharing here? And where, is it real? And what's its purpose? Who is this person that I'm actually supporting by sharing it and passing it on to my friends? You know, where, how do I know them? Facebook has used to be, um, it used to be only about speaking with friends and people that we knew, but Facebook has, has morphed into something much more than that, where now actually we don't friend people that, that we just know. It's, it's somebody that, you know, perhaps that even our friends know. Or we get these, these odd requests, don't we, from, from you know, attractive-looking women, you know, I do anyway. I'm not sure about you, Rick, but, um, <laughs> but you get to get these, um, these, you get these, these uh, friend requests from, from these really attractive looking women. You think, well, why is that woman interested in me? And, mm-hmm. and then you check all of her friends, and, and it's all, you know, ugly blokes like myself. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, they're not real. And they're, they're, they're out there friending people all of the time, um, trying, trying to build up their, you know, their, 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 face, their Facebook profile so they can share this sort of stuff to you. It's, it's money making, it's money generation. But I think we, we really have got to start really thinking about should we just be sharing news from, from trusted organisations these days and perhaps not sharing news from, from these, these odd people that we don't really know. We've heard uh, from time to time U.S. President Donald Trump uh, utter the phrase fake news and targeting it at uh, you know entities like NBC, like CNN. Um, what can they do to the president or can they do anything? Uh, well, I think that I think what Donald Trump has done for the world is um, he, he's made he's made uh, lots of things believable. First of all, he's he's the, the first non-politician to really to have made made president. You know, he's, he's come from come from nowhere, um, and and there's there's lots of these really outrageous stories about him, about where he come from, and about who he is, about what his background is, and and uh, what he's done for the fake news industry is he's, he's, he's created a a whole cottage industry around himself, really, not not by his own making, I suggest, but um, but by by this his, his whole persona, and people, you know, they're just, they're just hungry for for information about what is real, what isn't about him. I mean, it's a bit like that that Koi, the Koi Gate story this morning, and it's a, it's a nothing story, it's over nothing. But every single newspaper or media site here in the UK this morning was running this story about him uh, feeding, overfeeding the fish and, and, and doing something totally different to the Japanese Prime Minister and, and the Japanese being outraged about it. But, you know, this is I mean, it's, it's what, just a fish, uh, a fish food story. But imagine, you know, <laughs> people, want, people want, you know, imagine people 
thinking about, well, is he going to start a war in, in North Korea? Is he, does he really have the nuclear code? Can he, can he just launch uh, a nuclear war without speaking to anyone else? And, you know, all, all this stuff about collusion with Russia. Um, but this all feeds into the whole frenzy around, around fake media um, and, and fake news. And, and, and the, the, obviously the intelligence services in, um, in America, they aren't doing themselves any favours when, when they say, you know, Russians were definitely behind subverting justice. But the whole, the whole thing is, is a bit strange because it was the American public that voted him as president. It wasn't the Russians, mm-hmm. you know. Um, uh, and, and just because, uh, you know, some websites who pay rubles, um, the Russian currency, um, uh, are paying for advertising traffic in rubles, uh, it doesn't mean to say they were subverting justice and subverting uh, democracy uh, or trying to do anything underhand apart from, from make money. Uh, I, I, I don't know how we're going to stop it, but, um, but I, you know, I, I listened for me this morning um, he's definitely trying to check the, the, the sources of, of where this news is coming from and, and who they actually are, because this was shared on Twitter quite openly, and there were journalists tweeting it in this country this morning. Um, but just, uh, you know, just for literally five minutes into thinking, is this real, is this isn't? Uh, and, and, uh, and straight away, you know, you were, I was able to debunk it and say, this isn't, this is not real. You know, this is a, it's completely made up. But it's much harder when, we hear these things from, um, you know, particularly when unnamed intelligence sources, for example, are quoted in the media. You know, unnamed intelligence source or somebody close to the intelligence world has said, you know, something about Donald Donald Trump uh, and this intelligent dossier, etc., etc. How do we check all that? It's impossible, uh, and it and it just becomes a, a beast of its own in the media. Yeah, in this day and age, it's so it's so hard to do so. And, and the koi pond example uh, is a great example because all these different headlines of you know Donald Trump losing his patience and dumping the whole uh, you know fish yeah. food into the pond, and then when you actually read the story, I mean it, it's nothing it's nothing serious at all. It's just uh, an attempt <laughs> to get you to click, basically. Exactly, and that and that's all this you know, and really that's all this is about. It's about getting you to click. And it, even now, even though that this story's been debunked, even now the, the, the media sites here in the UK, they're still running the headline, Donald Trump got bored and dumped this stuff in the koi pond. <laughs> but actually, when you read the article, um, we, when you read the article, they've updated the article, they just haven't updated the headline. Yeah. So even, even our genuine websites, you know, the Daily Mail and people like that, you know, they're still running these absolutely outrageous clickbait headlines to get us to click on it because they want your revenue. And that's all that the people in Russia are doing. If they want your revenue, they want your click as well. They want a clickbait revenue. It's all that, about the money. All, that's all that's happening. Yeah, that's D- all that's going on. David, we got to run. Thanks for the time today. Yeah, nice talk to you, Rick. Take care. Take care. David Veidset, anti-terrorism specialist. Check out his books, The Thesis Paradox and The Detriment. You can find more at com. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.